0: الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وإلهكم إله واحد لا إله إلا هو الرحمن الرحيم وقال تعالى Allah la ilaha illahu al-hayy al-qayyum la ta'hudu sinatun wa la nawm wa ta'ala la ilaha illa huwa al-aziz hakim wa ta'ala Dalikum Allahu rabbukum la ilaha illa huwa khaliq kulli shay'in fa'buduhu wa huwa ala kulli shay'in wakeel my dear respected uh, brothers and sisters dear ulama dear friends Finally, after I don't know how many years, I'm in Darleston. I've heard so much about Darlaston, whether that could be called facts, fiction. Um, yeah, fictions, yeah, facts. I've come all the way to Walsall, but never to Darleston. I'm not sure if I came to drop somebody off once. But I've heard so much about you, or your, your masjid, your community, and this masjid. This is like the Nanitan masjid, right? Just smaller scale, I think. It's a bit smaller. So Alhamdulillah we're here today And uh, we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this a blessed uh, majlis for us MashaAllah Mawlana Adam Sab, He already chased all the shayateen away <laughs> Right with the La ilaha illallah I mean I don't think any shayateen could have carried on with that And uh, be sustained Mashallah, The powerful kalima of Allah The powerful formula of faith La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah Now the difficulty in discussing atheism To a group of Muslims Is this if I'm going to tell you about atheism, which means the denial of God, questioning God, doubts about God, then I may actually be creating doubts. And there's no need to do that. Why mention a doubt? For example, once Imam Asha Ali, he went to a debate and he had some of his uh, people with him. And he did, initially he didn't say anything. He let the other person speak, the other people speak. And this wasn't, he was not debating with atheists. He was debating with other sectarians. Imam Ash'ari himself had initially started off as a rationalist Mu'tazili a deviant sect but then later uh, he had seen a dream of the Prophet according to various different opinions and he had gone into the big masjid of Basra and he'd said look I'm no longer this and he took off his uh, top, his shawl or some kind of wrap he was wearing and he said just the way I shed myself of this likewise I shed myself of my former beliefs. He was actually marked to be the next star of the Mu'tazilis. But then, mashallah, he turned and he started to then attack them. He had the right kind of information to do that. So, he sat there and he let the other person speak and mention all the doubts. And once he'd finished, then he responded to them. So somebody asked, why did you let him speak so much? He said, because I didn't want to voice the doubts from my own tongue. I don't want to bring those doubts up. So that's why it's always a bit of a complicated issue. If you have no problem with, uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, we don't. And inshaAllah this la ilaha illallah, not, uh, you know, mashallah, that just solidified in our hearts anyway. So then there's no point, so I should just leave now. Right. Um, let me just talk about a few things. And then what I want to do is I want to let you ask questions. Because whatever I might say may be just useless to you right and uh, may not be beneficial to you so I'm gonna mention a few points I'm gonna try to equip us with how to deal with questions because what we have to realize is that no longer do we live in a world where religious religion is considered to be uh, sacred religion has pretty much in the Western world since the last 30 40 years maybe a bit more has been pushed out definitely out of the public domain is pushed out of media it's pushed out of schools it's pushed out of workplaces even if you're forget a muslim even if you're a very strong christian you need to leave your christianity at the door you can't go into your work with christianity you can't let christianity inform your job that's not objective that's subjective right that's what they believe so Religion in general, not just Islam, Islam is the only one that's kind of resisting. That's why the attack seems to be against Islam more. But otherwise, for the last 50, 60 years or so, Christianity has been slowly driven out. So, for example, there's one of the most famous uh, atheists of the last 50 years that is responsible among the five famous ones who's responsible for a lot of the doubts and a lot of the Conversions to atheism or however you want to define that his name is uh, Christopher Hitchens So you know you've got Dawkins you've got Sam Harris Christopher Hitchens. He's he's an atheist his brother his name is Peter Hitchens He's a journalist, and he seems to be a very strong Christian or practicing Christian And this is something very interesting. He did a talk recently and what he said inside what he said in that talk, he's talking to Christians. He's saying that soon, the world is going to be giving up secularism. Or rather, he said, materialism and consumerism. Um, these are just terms, basically. All right, This is not posh English. Some people are going to say, it's posh English. There's no, posh is the way you speak. Words can't be posh. It's the way you speak. I don't speak like the queen anyway. That's posh. okay? Because generally when you come up north, they start saying that that's posh. And then you close, uh, shaitan makes you close your ears and and hearts and say, forget, I can't listen to it. This is above my pay grades. So I'm telling you that these are just words. They're just terminology. Consumerism, majority of us are involved in it. Materialism, unfortunately the majority of us are involved in it and we don't even know. How many of you don't have Amazon Prime? Well, you can tell us. It's, it's not humiliating to do so. You know. Who doesn't have Amazon Prime? That's a minority. That's about seven, eight people. Maximum. Right? Everybody else has got Amazon Prime. Why have you got that? Because consumerism. You want it next day. In fact, you want it the same day sometimes. Depends on what time you order it. And when you open that box, you know that Amazon box that come all emblazoned with Amazon, you open it. I don't know, they put something inside this. As soon as you open it, it, it wafts in and then you feel really good. You should create some of that stuff. You could use it in your own mitai shops and things like that as well. It's amazing. It makes you feel really good when you open that box, doesn't it? Don't you feel good when you open that box? Sisters, they, You know, you know, you can just imagine the reaction. Then you have to do it all over again tomorrow because... Slowly, slowly, what happens? You open the box, and then after that, after half a day, the, the feeling of that goes, and you have to do it all over again, wait for the next box to come. It just feels really good. That's why people accumulate so much. Um, tomorrow is Boxing Day. Only go out if you need something. Like, have a list if you need something. Don't go out to try to find something to buy. If you don't have an idea in your mind of what to buy, you don't need it. This is what you call consumerism, because it's so easy in this country. Right? I lived in America for eight years. This is not how England was before. When I went in 2000 to America, before that, in my local supermarket, there was literally one shelf of drinks you could buy. That was the variety and that's it. One, one high shelf, that's it. I come, and when I got to America, I was shocked. One whole aisle of various different varieties. Now I come back to England, it's the same thing. So it's all caught up. And when, when there's availability, and you can pay on credit card, etc., etc., and then you get free money in this country. You don't get in America, but in this country you get a lot of free money as well. Right? You just, they just need a signature sometimes, or not even a signature sometimes. So, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, so, the ability to have disposable income, even if you don't. To, to be honest, we are living like the wealthy people of maybe 100 years ago. You know, baklava, you can get that anywhere now, right? Baklava was something that was specific to the Ottoman palace. That's where they were initially invented and manufactured. It wasn't available everywhere. But now you can literally get baklava from anywhere, right? They don't all taste nice, but you can get them. Today, we live like kings. We have so much access to whatever you want. And we're all part of the consumer culture. All of us, whether you, because that consumerism is beyond religion It's a human problem, it's a nafs problem It's a spiritual issue How many, uh, Who among you has an, the latest iPhone? You got the latest one? Yeah. Have you had the one before that as well? Yes yeah. Okay, so when you got your latest one Did you get the same excitement That you got when you got your first iPhone? Not really Yeah, that's what I'm saying So now even Apple is out of ideas the first iPhone that you probably got excited you much more than some of the later ones because there's not much more they can put into that thing anymore. right? It can only go so much. This is the dunya. It can only go so much. right? Okay, look, if you got your iPhone because your other phone was really messed up, that's justified. Go and get an iPhone. That's not a problem. If you need it, and that's the phone you want, khalas, it's fine. But if you're going to just do it because you've got a blind faith, for example, there are two billion Christians in the world today. There are 1.7 or 8 billion Muslims in the world today, apparently. But there's over 2 billion followers of Facebook. There's 2 billion. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Um, Lots of things have actually replaced faith in terms of our affinity, our love, our obsession with these things. There's nothing wrong with having good things. If you want to buy those who like jubbas, and every time they go to Saudi or somewhere, and they've got 20 jubbas now. now. You don't need 20 jubbas, right? Get rid of 10, give them to the poor. And the next time you go for Umrah, buy a new one if you want. That's not a problem. You got the money, buy a new one, but give some away. So don't start accumulating. Think how many pairs of shoes we have these days, right? If you want a new pair, go ahead and get a new pair. But go give some to Umrah welfare shop or something, right? Or somewhere else. Go and give it someone. Nothing wrong with having new things as long as we don't hoard and we don't love. If you have a new something for one year, maximum two years, get rid of it. Right, so all those really expensive wedding dresses that you bought just for one day of your life, which I still don't get, but I'm not a woman so I I won't get that. But the amount of money spent on a one-day wedding dress is just crazy. Get one that you can maybe modify and then wear again. So anyway, that's what we're talking about consumerism. The ability, the want to desire to get overnight, it's all based on the nafs. Right? And lots of psychology go into this, the way Amazon is, is totally designed. Those people who sell on Amazon, they're not very happy. But consumers are very happy because you give... Even if, even if you complain, even if, there's, even if the sender has assigned uh, proof of delivery, and you complain, you'll probably still get your money back. Because they're just like, customers always write. Because they just want you to buy. It. And they want to just overtake everything. There's a lot of psychology that goes behind this. But what Peter Hitchens is saying is that all of this is going to end soon. Because people aren't getting satisfaction of the heart with this. They're getting satisfaction of the nafs. But satisfaction of the nafs only works for half a day, few days. Your new phone is only going to excite you for a few days. Then it's just the same old phone. That's it. Right? Those things won't excite you as much. That's with anything. So people are going to go back to look for something for their heart. And what he's saying is that Christianity, because that's been driven out, people won't have recourse to Christianity. And he says the only leftover Christianity is the feel-good part of Christianity. All the difficult aspects of Christianity have been literally eliminated, and that didn't start recently. For example, it says in the Bible, it actually says that the swine is unlawful. The pig is unlawful. So when I discovered that at one time, I contacted a friend of mine who's, a Christ, uh, who's from a Christian background. He's an expert in Christianity. He knows quite a bit about Islam. I said, what's going on? How come uh, you, you still consume this? He said, because in the third century, we did away with all dietary restrictions. So within Christianity, there, isn't, there are no dietary laws. You can literally eat whatever you want as long as it's healthy or uh, you know, not harmful or whatever the case is. Whereas Jews, they still have Kosher laws and they're actually much more difficult than than the Muslim laws and I've been with Jews and they can't even eat normal vegetables They have to get them specially washed Especially treated in a particular way to eat them and there's they they're not allowed to have meat and And milk together. So if you've had you know cereal for breakfast within this two fatwas some say then you have to wait for four hours and some say you have to wait for 8 hours. I believe the guys in Stamford Hill in London, my area, close to my area, they say their fatwa is 8 hours you have to wait. I'm Jewish fatwa I'm talking about, not Muslim fatwa. Right, their rabbi's fatwa, and the other one is 4 hours. So, he's saying that people aren't going to find anything in Christianity. He then says... But in Islam, they'll find something. So basically what he's saying is that since you've been pushing out Christianity, people are going to turn to Islam because Islam still is a wholesome religion. But then in a very ominous way, the the next part is that but Islam could also go in that same direction because we also have our own set of progressives or extreme liberals who want to take out a lot of things niqab is not necessary that's just the first line then hijab is not necessary for example if I if somebody there's a woman who doesn't wear hijab a guy who doesn't pray and he works in the normal corporate environment he's gonna be saying why do I need to worry about people praying at work Muslims don't need to do it it's okay because I don't do anything but for those of you who are working in the corporate environment who do want to pray he's not speaking on your behalf problem is that the media gives voice To two extremes all the time because they're the interesting ones the 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 majority who are in the middle we're boring right it's not interesting they will give to those extremists who are always saying kill everybody and do this and do that and you know kuffar and all the rest of it they give they give voice to those people or they give it to the total opposite extreme that look we should do away with everything there's no reason for this you can be muslim as long as you believe so in the heart and that's enough but the vast majority they don't get a voice So we're dealing with all of that. So what he's saying, which we should wake up to, is that soon consumerism people are getting tired of, so they're going to turn towards a religion. They're only going to find Islam. right? But he's also saying that Islam may go in the same direction because Islam does have, as the Prophet himself said, that you will follow the Jews and Christians in many of the ways that they've gone, many of the degenerations uh, that they have undergone. So that's the point about consumerism. Now, let's move on to belief system. Um, The first thing, there's several different points I want us to just think about. And then if you have any questions, inshallah, we'll take those. First and foremost, there are, uh, I've dealt with uh, a few young men and women who, teenagers, uh, at least one one was about 12, 13, wasn't too bad. That it was the beginning, so Alhamdulillah, we discussed. Then the others, one was 16, 17, the other one was probably about 20. The, all the questions that they're regurgitating, it's literally a taqleed of Richard Dawkins. Taqleed means a blind following. So the same arguments are being provided, the same arguments, same questions, same controversial points that they're, they're mentioning, they're from Richard Dawkins' books. Now, I don't know if they know that Richard Dawkins' book has been answered has been responded to, and there's numerous things that have come out to res- respond to him. And he's been disgraced in general anyway, because he's a bit crazy in the way he does things. All right? So, I'm not sure if they've read the responses. But otherwise, it's just a blind following. So it's the same regurgitation of that. We though, whether we're in the workplace, with children in this country, we're going to have to become a lot more understanding of these issues. Right? We're going to have to become a lot more understanding of these issues. And there are a number of things that we need to keep in mind when people are, when you are answering questions about Islam. So if you're at work somewhere or at school or somebody else, it's no longer the time when you can say, brother stop," or sister, stop talking about this. You can't do that anymore. Because it's very difficult to get somebody to... Um, you, you can hardly even get parents and children to think alike today. Today is the time of what we call individualism. Everybody thinks for themselves. In the time of the Prophet Sallallahu only the leader of the Aus or Khazraj tribe became Muslim. And everybody became Muslim because of that one person. Now you can't even imagine that today. How many arguments are there in between parents and children? They can't even think alike. Especially when you've got parents from another country. And because remember parents from India, Pakistan, Egypt. Where are you from, brother? Morocco? Yeah. Morocco. Right? The way they think, what they can, their reference points are going to be very different. It's a whole different paradigm to the way we would think in this country if you're born here. So there's a massive clash of dimensions. That's very complicated. Uh, The people who've come into this country in they've got the Indian paradigm or Pakistani or Moroccan paradigm, they've got the Islamic paradigm, and they've got the British paradigm. They've got three paradigms to try to work out. Those who are born here, they've got the Islamic paradigm, they've got the British paradigm, which is very powerful, and then you've got what your parents are trying to tell you. How do you work through this? It's too complicated, but you decided to come here. Or our parents did. Or our grandparents did. Whoever did, so we're here now. Right? We have to make it work. So now it's very important that when somebody asks you a question, don't just tell them. Because I've had this so many times that somebody has become something else. And one of the reasons was we did ask the imam in the masjid, we did ask my parents or whatever. And they just told us, don't think about these things. You can't get people to stop thinking about things anymore. They want to think. Somebody's planted a seed, a doubt. We need to be able to deal with it. But that doesn't mean that every one of us needs to know every single answer. You don't need to be a super-Muslim. Because that's just not natural to be a super-Muslim, that you just know every answer. I don't know every answer. And most people out there will not know every answer. They will know many answers, but they won't know all the answers. So what you have to remember is that one thing you should be able to say, I don't know the answer to this, if you don't know the answer. Don't try to make something up. You just make it worse sometimes. And then you go and find out. Right? When you answer about being a Muslim, just because Islam has been criticised so much, it doesn't mean that we need to bend our back and answer. We need to keep a straight back and answer with confidence when we do answer. That yes, I'm a Muslim. I give you the ex- uh, an example. I was in a meeting in a town. Uh, sorry, in a in a college, and there was a, a Muslim sister going to speak before me, and she had the hijab and So she spoke. Five minutes I think And then there was question and answers And then it was going to be somebody else Then it was going to be me As soon as she spoke and she finished Those young college boys and girls They just started attacking her By saying Why do you wear that hijab on your head Why do you cover your head for Why is it necessary She gave this typical answer That many women give Which is They think it's a wonderful answer But to be honest It's not a very good answer They think They say Oh it's my choice Right to do that so now the immediate next question is going to be, why is it your choice? Who made you make that choice? Who convinces you to make that choice? At the end of the day, why do you make a choice? Because you've been indoctrinated to feel a certain way. That's why you make a certain choice. right? What, the question we have to ask now, I couldn't say anything because it wasn't my turn. Right? I really felt sorry for her. When it became my turn, then... I I must have discussed a few things and then I just went into that question I said you had that question I don't think you got a satisfactory answer but the question that I'm going to ask you is that why even are you asking this question why are you even agitated by the fact that somebody covers their head what makes you uncomfortable about it that you have to ask the question what is it deep down that makes you feel that that makes you ask that question It's because you've been led to think that covering the head is a bad thing because you've seen it bombarded in the media so many times. Tell me, I said, which is the line on your body, or a woman's body, after which it's not allowed to be covered? And who decided that line, if there is such a line? Is there a line that after this, why is it superior to dress in jeans and a top, right, than a head covering and a long flowing tunic? Why is one better than the other? Who decided that? Who makes that what we call value judgment? Where's the statistics behind it? Right? Why is this one better than this? Have you taken it in a laboratory? Have you done the study? Or is it just coming purely from a blind ideology that you don't even know you hold? That's why you're asking this question. Can you see what I'm talking about? Right? The reason why people ask questions is because something is so normal, so accepted that they don't even know they're causing a problem by asking because they just think, if you're different everybody else is like this, then you must be weird right? even asking even you know when we say, oh he looks weird or she looks weird that in itself is a judgement I remember once I said that to a friend of mine that that person is dressed very weirdly he says, we're all weird (laughs) to somebody else, we're all weird because we're just comfortable in the way we are so how can you make that judgement? so it's a value judgment you make who makes that judgment who told you that hijab is wrong now as soon as you get people to think of why they asked the question you've turned the tables now you're going to get a more productive discussion otherwise you've lost already you can't compete with ideology unless you attack the ideology for example somebody asks you another question that why doesn't if god is so merciful why doesn't he help us understand him How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? Now, if you accept that premise, you're accepting that God hasn't helped us, and you say, you have to start back. Why is He asking this question? Of course God has helped us. He has helped us through the prophets, He sent prophets, He sent books, He sends both bounties he sends uh, uh punishments he sends reminders within ourselves, within the cosmic system some people have become muslim just by looking at various different fruits just the beauty of how each different fruit is designed just just compare just an orange it looks so simple but the complexity of the way it's designed as compared to a banana as compared to an apple as compared to your mango right it's just a complete different, everyone is uniquely different. And then if you go into the more exotic stuff like the mongosteen and the dragon fruit and all that, ajib, where that creativity comes from, right? And everything is practical as well. It's just completely practical in that sense. So ideology is very important. So when you are asked the question, never jump into answering it. When somebody calls it an objection, you have to remember not every objection is a real objection, just because somebody calls it an objection. Right? Just because somebody says This is an objection against Islam Doesn't mean it is You have to unravel it If you're in a hurry Don't answer the question Say let's have some chai Let's have some tea right? Or coffee or whatever you're interested in Go relax And then have a discussion Say why are you asking this question So let, let's, de- let's deal with one question right? So let's deal with the question of Aisha radiallahu anha Because this one is used a lot today right? <coughs> Has anybody heard this issue Why the Prophet got married to such a young girl Because the nikah was done at the age of six But she didn't move in with him until nine That's when she became baligh and mature So she was nine He got married to her in Mecca, Mukarramah They moved to Medina Munawarra three years later That's when she actually moved in with him So now the question is that Why did your prophet get married at the age of nine? How are you going to answer that question? So the first question is Why are you so agitated about that? What's your problem with it? Now clearly you can see now where the question is coming from People don't get people married off at the age of 9 anymore In fact it's illegal But even if it's not li- illegal I wouldn't let my daughter get married at 9 I wouldn't let my dr- daughter get married at 15 Not even at 16 Maybe at 17 Do you understand? I don't know what your you know, idea is But that's my thing Because I just don't think children are mature enough anymore today they're just about coming off this mobile phone or they take it into the marriage, right? They're just getting off their Xboxes. You think your, your, your son at 16 can get married? I've seen children who come from other countries though, who are 12, 13, and they can do a much better job than an 18-year-old of this country. Because they're not brought up mollycoddled in the way that we are. They've been maybe in their father's business. Okay, maybe they didn't go to school, but they have a lot more worldly savvy than a lot of our children. Without, without a phone or a computer, right? many of our children would be like cold turkey, they just won't know what to do. Whereas these guys, they know what to do, they know how to run a house. So number one, what we have to realize is that you cannot judge another community, another generation, by the norms of our generation. By the norms of our generation. Why I wouldn't allow my daughter to be married that day? Not because it's haram Not just because it's illegal, but because I don't think she's ready for it And I don't think there's a guy who would be ready for that either, right? But in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi a totally different story Just from 50 years ago a, a, a teacher of mine used to live in Malawi, right? And he in that time there were no lights. I mean Malawi is still quite developing. I was there a few years ago It's still, you know, South Africa is way more developed than Malawi. You're from Zambia. Zambia is similar to Malawi, right? So, but in those days, there were hardly any lights. Mufti Shabir Sab used to say that after Maghrib, they would be snoozing. They couldn't wait until Isha time so that they could go to sleep. But they weren't allowed to sleep because you had to pray Isha. There was nothing to do. In those kind of rural communities around the world as it was, people either looked after sheep or they looked after some animals or they did some other odd jobs here and there. There was nothing to entertain you in the evening. There was no phone, there was no Netflix that you could just literally watch to death. As soon as one movie finishes or one thing finishes, the second one comes up. Very well designed. As soon as you log in, mashallah, it's just like galore, whatever you want, right? And... um, it tracks how you think and then gives you the right options. Hey, that looks good. You know, they weren't dealing with any of that. So what would they do in their free time? They're young boys and, you know, we're still young boys and girls, right? With hormones, that's still the same. You know, the, the estrogen and what's the other one? Testosterone. The testosterone, mashaAllah, that's pumping, right? That was always there. So what would they do? They would get married. Produce children. Let's ha- you know do something with your life. People got married early. So what we have to realize is that it's only changed in the last hundred years. In fact, they uh, somebody's looked into the historical facts here, and they've gone back and they found that the first person to criticize the Prophet for marrying a young girl was Ma Goliath who was uh, an Oxford, I think, preacher and an academic, I think, he called it an ill-informed union. This was in 19, early 1900s, 19-something. Before that, the Prophet ﷺ has been criticized for centuries. The Qur'an mentions criticisms that the people of Makkah had for the Prophet ﷺ. They called him Sahir, they called him Soothsayer, they called him Fortune, they called him all sorts of things. So don't think the Prophet ﷺ has only been con- is only being... Um, criticized now he's been criticized throughout the centuries but why did nobody bring this criticism Aisha was actually fixed up with somebody else Abu Lahab's son if I remember correctly before the Prophet and then because Abu Bakr became Muslim they, they broke it off it was normal in fact she was then proposed by two or three other people and the Prophet did not propose to her somebody else Thought it was a good idea and came to the Prophet and said that Abu Bakr ﷺ daughter. It wasn't even something the Prophet went for himself, but it was quite normal in those days to get married to young girls, meaning as long as as long as they were mature enough. And then we've got a whole corpus of hadith to show because she is one of the most prolific narrators of hadith, more than her father. Her father has less hadith than she does, and some really, you can understand her inter- intellect. You can understand. Her practicality. In fact, the oldest wife of the Prophet, ﷺ, who was she? Uh, aside from Khadija, who passed away, was Sauda She was the oldest. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ was even going to divorce her. And she said, look, just keep me, but I'll give my night over to Aisha So Aisha had two nights. She was scared of Aisha radiallahu anha. Once they made a plan to do something. And Sauda said, I was so scared of you that I was going to say it even before the time. There, there was something she had to say to the Prophet. ﷺ that was aisha young girl right but mashallah very savvy very on it she knew exactly and she was the right person to be one of the ummahatul mu'minin to allow the the feminine, feminine aspect the female aspect of religion to pass through because she's got more narrators than in, more narrations than anybody else uh, any other women at least for that matter so you can tell she was very intelligent she was right for that and there was no problem with it but there was one thing they criticized him about There's a hadith in Bukhari etc which mentions that before he got married to her He was shown in a dream that Jibril came to him And he was shown in a silken cloth or something her picture Now from that he knew what this meant So that's mentioned in a hadith So their criticism was that he was fantasizing about her Not that he got married to her, that wasn't a problem That only became a problem in this century so when you look at things like this, you understand now Because even Muslims, when they ask, why did your prophet get married at nine? They, are, they feel like they don't know how to answer this You can't judge, there's a specific term in psychology for this that you, Or, or in, in anthropology for this, where I forget what it's called You can't project your culture on another culture Because they work on a different paradigm completely I'll give you an example, once I was sitting in the bus in London, and there were two teenage girls sitting behind me. I could hear them speaking, and they're speaking, they're not dressed very well, right? And they said that they went to, or they met some Indians or something like that, and They were all, or Pakistanis or something, and they were very well covered up and everything. And they were just remarking that, look how they dress, right? Now... I, I, you know they don't know I'm listening, but they they're, they're speaking. I'm not trying to listen to them. It's just they're speaking loud enough for people around them to hear, and they were talking about this. So, what they eventually said: these are some really good girls, it seems, because they said, "Yeah, we think that's all weird, don't we?" But they would probably think we're weird because they probably think we dress like sluts. They literally said that. Before, for a woman to have a short skirt, long boots, that would be only prostitutes, but now that's a norm. Right? And our own women are going in that direction because it starts off, you know, Asians, they find it very difficult to show their legs. They'll show their hair all day long, but they can't show their legs. Arabs, they have no problem in showing their legs, but they don't like uncovering the hijab. I'm not, when I'm I'm Arabs, I'm talking Middle Eastern. I don't know about Moroccans. Alright? Because in America, that's what I was dealing with. But what happens slowly, slowly, is this is just the steps of shaitan. And I'm not picking on women, I'm just mentioning how shaitan starts. He says, Allah says, La tattabi'u shaitan. Don't follow in the footsteps of shaitan. What that means is that shaitan is not going to tell you to do zina straight away. Shaitan is not going to tell you to steal straight away. It's going to start slowly getting, opening the doors, removing the taboos, removing the bad thoughts until eventually it becomes okay to do it. So you first start off with, uh, what do you call it, leggings, thick leggings. That's okay. Then it starts off with thinner ones. Then shorter ones. And then eventually you know the trajectory of where that goes. That's the way shaitan works. So, what we have to always do is don't project the ideas and norms of one generation, one people, onto another. Because people think differently. Alright? That's why, you know the same question going back to it. Which is the part of the body after which it's wrong to cover? Who's going to decide that now? You say... It's this, I say, it's that Who makes the decision? We're both human beings We have no science behind this Right? We got, as though science is like some kind of, you know Science doesn't, let me, let me, you know, for those who are confused about science Science with Islam has no problem Okay, let's be on record to say There is no problem with science Islam has never had a problem with science The church has But Islam has never had a problem with science We had many scientists Today we have many scientists But they're not sitting in Muslim countries They're sitting in America and Europe So many Egyptians, so many Palestinians, so many Pakistani scientists They're sitting in those countries because their countries don't value them So they're in the major laboratories and the big businesses and and companies in the West There are a lot of good Muslims and I know several of these people Who are doing some very good things So Um, Science has never had an issue Because we've had huge scientists That have developed so many things Just currently the Muslim world is on a defense mode They don't have money to put behind New innovations New research Do you understand? They're most likely in defense mode Many of the problems we see are in the Muslim countries Our money is all spent on relief work We're not being proactive We're always being defensive, reactive We don't know even in this country to campaign We only get upset Once the laws are made about us afterwards But we never I mean now we're waking up to it And we are campaigning a bit But going back to science Science has no problem with religion Because science does not deal with the realm of religion Science doesn't deal with a number of things It does not deal with aesthetics Something being beautiful or not beautiful Is not the realm of science right? Moral, morality That's not the realm of science Science is observance Empirical Empiricism Which is If I see the same thing happening so many times And I can say Okay, this is what happens Put it simply It's not as simple as that, right? But science doesn't deal with morality It shouldn't do anyway Science should not deal with aesthetics And philosophies That's why Physics is science Physics deals with the physical world The natural (coughs) world But Our belief is in the metaphysical world. Metaphysics means beyond the natural world. When we talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's beyond physics. The angels are beyond physics. Science can't deal with that. That's not its realm. Philosophy is the realm of that, not science. Then why is science so blameworthy? It's because we have scientists right, who are not neutral. We have scientists who are not objective. They carry biases, they have an anti-religious bias, so they read into their science that which is incorrect, and they make science problematic because of their reading into it. For example, uh, if, you're, if, you've got, if you've got an interest in understanding evolution from a Muslim perspective, and a critique of the, 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 the mainstream understanding of evolution, they did a survey, I think it was in Yale or Princeton, they did a survey that what do you think is the relig- uh, is a- a- uh, atheist within the scientific community? How does it compare to atheist in the normal community? And the two studies they did, the conclusion was that it's the same. So if there's 20% of atheists in the mainstream community, there'll be 20% in the... Real, uh, in the science community. It's not more than that. It's just the same representation But I, I was saying that if you want to understand evolution is confusing so many people have lost their faith because of it Because most Muslims they follow the Christian perspective on evolution, which is that it's all wrong But there are aspects of evolution which are not problematic and you can accept The biggest problem we have is with the issue of Adam coming from other creatures You know evolving from there. There's no proof for it at all. It's all a theory I read a book, uh, it's called, uh, it's by Ben Miller, it's called uh, It's Not Rocket Science. And anybody who's interested in understanding science for dummies, this is a wonderful book. It's a very well-written book, makes it very easy to understand. Many different aspects of science, including astronomy, food science, and so on. I agreed with everything in there, except the evolution. Because it was only in the evolution where he said, although we can't prove X, Y, and Z, but because there's a near consensus on this, we must accept it. That's not science, that's not scientific, and I was like, man, you messed it up for me. I said I enjoyed your book until now, right? You've just messed it up for me. Like you've, just, I've just lost trust in you. Well, at least you told me that there's no proof for it. At least he was honest like that. Uh, Mufti Zamil Rahman and uh, Malna Usman Ali. Malna Usman is really doing a PhD in biology right now, and Mufti Zamil Rahman was. In, in Cambridge doing a medical degree then he went and became Alim and Mufti they've both done on zamzamacademy.com there, there's about four lectures and you should listen to them Mufti Zamil shows how and mona Asuman they show how in the college and university level books on evolution they show the same pictures that have been discredited as being wrong and manipulations they still show those same pictures and because it's such a dominant idea that nobody questions it, you questioning it makes you look silly. That's why what they say is custom is king. Whatever becomes the custom, for you to go against that custom is very difficult. You know, like sometimes if you want to go against Pakistani culture, Gujarati culture, you're going to be in big trouble, nobody's going to listen to you. Right? Custom is very strong, and that's the Western custom that makes it so difficult. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اُسْتَعِينُوا sabri wa salah. O people who believe, you need to seek assistance in Allah with sabr, with patience, because you're going to feel helpless. How am I going to deal with this stuff? I can see it's wrong. How do I deal with it? But be patient. And with salat and uh, salat. And then Allah says, <laughs> You will remain elevated as long as you are truly believers. Not just in name. But truly believers in really having that belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Finally, what I'll mention before I open it up is that Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi, he is one of our one of our greatest thinkers that we've had. We've had many others, but the reason why he becomes the greatest, if I mean one of the greatest, if not the greatest, is because we have a lot of his works that are very clear about these, about these topics. Right? So He's written his own biography called Al-Munqidh Minad Dalal, which basically means deliverance from error. Because although he became one of the great scholars of the Muslim world, but then he started having questions because he was a thinker. Most people are not thinkers, they're followers. Now the thinkers, they have to be very careful because if they think and shaitan takes them on the wrong track, they can take a lot of people astray. And if if you have tawfiq from Allah, then your thinking will be good and inshallah you can do some wonderful things in this world. So he said this question. He said, look, I'm born in a Muslim household, so I'm very convinced about my faith. A Christian kid is born in a Christian household, very, very convinced about Christianity. I don't know if anymore, but at least that was the case then. Likewise, a Jewish kid who's born in a Jewish household. So that doesn't prove anything, does it? If you've got conviction in your religion, I've got conviction in my religion. That doesn't make my religion better than yours. You understand? Because it's just conviction based on something else. So he said that I decided to explore and find out. So he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with, the on, with absolutes only. Things which everybody agrees on. What they call axiomatic understandings. right? Things that nobody disagrees. Do you disagree that two is greater than one? Does everybody agree that one is half of two? Oh you got some doubts here. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? 2 is greater than 1. That's an axiomatic belief. Things that are so basically everybody knows you don't have to prove it. As soon as you say it people agree. Let me start with that. But then he said that when I started looking at that I started getting doubts about those things as well. And in the world those who want to doubt who want to go onto the trajectory of doubt they will they you can doubt till you die. For example, somebody asked you the question Prove it that you are your your father's child. Right? You need to prove to me that you are your father's child. How are you going to prove it? Forget DNA, that's complicated. What are you going to start with first? Have you got a birth certificate? Yeah, I mean, you start with a birth certificate. You don't go to DNA straight away, right? (laughs) So you start with a birth certificate. He's going to say, This can be doctored. Right? I'm sure you can, I mean in India you can probably do it anyway But even in this country I'm sure somebody, I don't think they, they do passports Why can't they do birth certificates? Right? So at the end of the day when you want to do skepticism Then even a birth certificate is a problem, okay let's go to a DNA then right? Now we get to DNA um, So now in DNA it's not never 100% right? It's 99 point something percent right? I think you can use DNA to disprove something but I don't think you can use it to prove something. Recently, a friend of mine, his wife is uh, leads this uh, fertility clinic. And they had a really strange case where they did the IVF. And then the the, the the man, he after they got the baby, he's saying, that's not my child. So they had to do numerous checks and then to find out if anything had been cross-contaminated, the DNA verified. They had to actually consult one of the top DNA um, scientists in the world And they found that This is a very unusual case Very unusual case Right So DNA can't be 100% proof Especially for a skeptic For most of us Okay, خلاص, that's enough But for a skeptic They say, no, that's not 100% I want 100% I mean, for these people Only the danda works They say generally Right Because they've got A psychological problem It's like an OCD issue Right Guys who have dealt with Who come to muftis With OCD problems Allahu Akbar Allah give them therapy Because it, I won't want that even on my enemy. They ask you a question, right? That I said this to my wife. Is it a divorce? I said no, it's not a divorce. Okay, you got your answer? No. They will ask the same question in a different way. I said no, that's still it. it's not a divorce. It's okay. A third way, they'll change to some, and then they'll ask. Then now I'm, I think I'm trained enough to understand it's OCD. So I said, look, you've got OCD. I've been getting a question for the last. Three, four months from this individual I answered it the first time That it it was about various thoughts he has about Allah Are these kufr? I said, no, if they're involuntary, it isn't, they're not kufr Same question next week The next week The next week And I know he's got OCD So I'm not even responding to him Because I can't help him I'm not trained to deal with OCD Ulama are not trained to deal with OCD This is a medical condition Right? He's asking the same question Just in different words and finally I felt sorry for him again, because now then he must have contacted this guy called Asim Hakim, And he gave him a very rough answer, so then he writes that to me, he says, look, this is what he's saying. I said, well, I don't blame him, but I didn't, I didn't say that to him. Then I get an email with cc to about 35 different people around the world, asking them the same thing. He's like, you can tell he's frustrated, but I can't help you, right? And then he writes me this very long email that, look, I've got OCD, and the way to help me is to answer my questions. <laughs> so then I said, okay, fine So now, just last week, just a few days ago I responded to him again I said, look, I completely understand I'm not trained though to deal with you right? You don't need a fatwa right? You need medical But he's telling me that the medical guys are telling him That it's, he needs to deal with a religious person I think they're just kind of throwing you know, the responsibility I said, I answered your question the first time around You asked the same question Just in different words so what you do is, anytime you have a parishani problem, just go and look at that first answer. Don't ask it again. Just, it's the same answer. Because the only other answer I've got is that, yes, you have done kufr. There's only two ways about it. Do you want me to tell you that? No, I don't want you to tell me that. This is psychological complexes that people deal with, and sometimes skepticism is one of those things. They will even deny their own paternity. Because what is going to prove 100%? So Imam Ghazali, he said, I went through the same thing. Even absolutes... Things that you don't need evidence for, they started, I started questioning them. And he said it was then only the rahmah of Allah that I managed to come out of this. That's why Allah says, It's the one who Allah has expanded his breast for Islam that He is on the Noor of He is on the Noor from His Lord. Otherwise, I give you one other example. Uh, in America last year or the year before, there, there's these uh, I think the Indian, Pakistani, they've become atheists. One's name is Muhammad. Muhammad the atheist, like such an oxymoron. Like, how would you get Muhammad who's an atheist? But he's one of them. And they've been going around to universities to explain to them their story. Right? Like a roadshow. I read an interview. So one of the people asked, one of the interviewers asked him that, um, wouldn't it just be, how, how are your family? He says, obviously they've disowned us. We're not with our family anymore. He said, how does that feel to you? He said, that feels very bad for us. You know, we feel so bad that our families don't speak to us. He says that, wouldn't it be easier for you to believe? Solid question, right? Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier for you to believe? He said, yes, but we can't believe. We can't, it's something blocking us from believing. That's why when last year in our, we've got a course on, um, on Zamzam Academy, uh, sorry, on White Thread Institute, It's called the Faith Foundations course, Islamic Theology course. Anybody can take it. It goes through all of these various different ideologies. And we went through all of the various different proofs for the existence of God. The teleological, the cosmological arguments, right? Um, The uh, ontological arguments. We went through all of them. And at that time, you know, we were asking the question that we should undertake a study to see which of these arguments work best for atheists. Like, which are the most convincing? But by the end of it, I think we became convinced that it doesn't matter if the, if the hidayah and the guidance is not written. Then you could bring all the arguments in the world and they won't work. But that doesn't mean it's a cop-out, that we shouldn't try, we should try. We need to know arguments, we need to know why certain things happen. Right. So Imam Ghazali, he says, I came to a point where everything was doubtful, there were no absolutes anymore, white is not white, black is not black, black, because it's all relative. So he said that Allah saved me, and he gives a wonderful example. The example he gives, so he said, think of this idea, right? He said, then eventually I thought that when a person is having a dream, right, when you're having a dream, how real does that dream feel especially if for example you've just had an accident or you know you lost your job or something like that it feels so real you could be sweating and it feels so long and then suddenly you wake up and you feel alhamdulillah that was just a dream <inaudible> spit to your left and alhamdulillah you get but while you were in the dream did you have a doubt you were in the dream did anybody have a doubt that they're in their dream? No. He says now that when you're in your dream, and you think it's such a reality, and then you wake up and you find that it was all nothing. So then he says that if you're going to be skeptical about things, then why aren't you also doubtful about this world reality that you're living in right now? Why is this not a dream? Tomorrow you could wake up from this and find was, this was all a dream. Like we're sitting here together today, How do you know this is a reality? How do you know we're not going to wake up from this and say, this was a dream, not a nightmare, but it was a dream. Just the same way. So he says, that's when he stopped. Because he said, if I'm going to create doubt, there is no reality then. There will be certain things you must, and you ask Allah. That's why anybody who's got a doubt, they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will give them. Allah has benefited so many people, who are even non-Muslim, who started off as non-Muslims. They were shown either the Prophet and they were shown the Adhan or something like that. People who are looking for guidance. If you read a lot of these convert stories, somewhere along the line they were looking for something. They were looking for reality, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala guided them. The fact that most of us were born in Muslim households, right? I'm not even going to question that idea. I'm just so thankful that that was the case, that we didn't have to search, right? I am really thankful to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for what He's given me. I'm very confident about where I am, right? And what you have to realize is that you can learn Islam through intellectual arguments. But somebody would come up with a better intellectual argument and create doubt in you. Because intellectual arguments, aqli dalail as we call them, they can be broken by a superior aqli dalil. But what will never be broken, which Imam Ghazali comes to the conclusion of, because he says then eventually the most conviction I found was in the way of the Sufis. What he means by that? is when you've actually experienced waking up in Tahajjud and feeling the closeness of Allah, feeling that coolness in your heart, when you do dhikr, and when Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you satisfaction and made you feel good, there's nothing that's going to shake that. If you don't personalize your faith and spiritualize your faith, and feel the benefit of that, feel the coolness in your prayer, as the Prophet said, the gladness and coolness of my eyes is in my prayer. That is the way to get the perfect Yaqeen. Because with Yaqeen, nothing is a problem anymore. And that's why we need Yaqeen. If you have Yaqeen, then nothing is confusing anymore. You can ride through the worst of storms. And right now, we do have an atheistic storm out there, right? But inshallah, there's hope for the future. As I go with Peter Osborne's words, which is that at least the Muslims still have some of the tough things that still make their religion a viable religion and not just a feel-good factor religion. As unfortunately, Christian, Christianity has become. You see, it was in the 1960s or so that modernity began. And then we have post-modernity right now, which is that religion must not inform anything because religion is discredited. One of the reasons why religion was discredited in Europe, because number one, you have to realize that Europe never had a prophet. At least we don't know of any prophet that came to Europe. They imported one, which was Jesus, peace be upon him. But unfortunately, the church did a lot of persecutions and aggression in the name of the church in Europe, especially in France. Especially in France. So when basically the world wars and everything, they saw all the problems and everything, they just said, we don't like religion anymore. We don't like religion anymore. The Russians were the worst, meaning the Soviets were the worst. They just didn't even allow religion. The French don't know how to deal with religion. Alhamdulillah, at least the British allow religion. So we're, we are happy that it wasn't the Russians or the French or others. It was the British because at least it's better off. I mean we're in it's a reality now so you can't even argue about it, right? But what's very interesting is that Turkey is on a totally different Turkey's been colonized by their own. Right? They were not never colonized from outside. And the resurgence is amazing today in Turkey. We last year we had a a scholars and a Muslim leaders tour to Turkey. We went to all the prominent organizations and it was just amazing the kind of ikhlas and sincerity and motivation they have. Even though many of us would judge them because they don't have a beard or something, right? And um, we went into an Imam Hatib school which is one of their Muslim schools. So, Sheikh Haytham was with us. right? Pray for him, he's got cancer. May Allah give him shifa. He asked one of the 12-13 year old kids, I think he was about 13 years old, that inshallah, you need to be like Muhammad bin Fatih. So, if somebody said, okay, okay, we'll be like that, right? He said, inshallah, but what about you? Can you imagine the answer? Like, what about you? So, there are about three million Syrians there. They don't even let you call them refugees, they call them, um, what do you call it? They, they call them guests, right? They've given so many of them citizenship, they're not all stuck in a camp somewhere. And Ajib, mashallah, they have. And all the organizations that we went to, they all answered, I asked them, I said, Where is this, is this coming from? Is this coming from your scholars, your ulama? Is this coming from your politicians? Or is this this immutant um, Ottoman gene, right, that is now rearing its head and, you know, it's just, you know, the Ertugrul as everybody's going on about. Um, Er-tuglul, Ertuglul Is that right? You can say the Turkish way um, But mashallah, they, they, they are doing What many other countries Are not doing And may Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala Grant them strength Amen. Because A lot of the <coughs> Inferiority complex And the reason Why a lot of people Are turning <coughs> Away from the faith Is because They don't see Islam Cool anymore Because We're constantly Bombarded with Attacks against Islam We, ha- we do have Bad members who do crazy things. And then, of course, if you have a few people in your family who've done something weird here and there, right, you've never thought about it too much and you think, I've got a very good family, I'm from this gum that GAM, that village, whatever. But then somebody starts saying, Man, your village is bad. You're going to be defensive first. But then he's going to say, But you know, that guy from your village and that guy from your village, and he did this. Now you start accepting that, right? And then you start realizing that I'm not that good as I thought I was. This is happening with Islam. The, the amount of attacks in the media against Islam is huge And a lot of people with weak faith Who don't have that experience of Islam They're going to start feeling like Islam So to be honest Most people who don't care about their faith They're not atheists Atheists just tend to be louder But they're a minority It's very difficult to completely reject God It's not easy Because God, Allah is such an essential reality For you to completely give up That's very difficult Some people do that Most are either agnostic which means, I'm still looking Or, majority are probably suffering from apathy Apathy means indifference, I don't care I've got my Amazon, I've got my Netflix, I've got this, I've got that, I don't need to care about it Apathy is a bigger problem They just feel, I don't need religion, I'm, 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 I'm secure I, I've got money to buy things, I've got security You need three things, you need security, you need your daily provision and you need health. If you have those three things, the Prophet said that you've got the whole world. But the delusion in that is that you think you're so secure, you don't need God. That's the problem. That's why most times the people that followed first Prophets, were the weaker people. The wealthy people, they couldn't understand. That's why even today, if you go to these universities and you've got students there from Pakistan, for example, the elite, who've come to study in UCL, and Imperial College, and all these colleges. They can't believe it when they see British born, intellectual boys and girls, at these universities, hijab, praying, focused on their religion. Because in Pakistan, for example, at least, as far as I know, religion is not for the elite. Religion is for the lowly people. There's obviously exceptions in this. It's not for the elite. It's for the downtrodden people. And when you've got that culture, it's a very difficult culture. So they get shocked, well, you guys are born here, you are our ideal. You know, this is what we're hoping for to be. But we can't be. And you guys are religious. Remember, there's a lot of factors that play. So if you are having doubts, so you know somebody with doubts, sit down and try to understand where these doubts are coming from. They don't always come from one place. And I have to mention this before I finish. One of the big reasons for why people get disenfranchised is because they've been persecuted in the name of their religion. When I say persecuted, I don't mean beaten up necessarily, but they've had a strict strict upbringing without any common sense understanding of their religion. They've been told to pray or fast or whatever without giving them any understanding. Beaten up maybe, not allowed to go out, not allowed to do this and that. and They just feel this is because of Islam. In fact, in some households, they're not even religious. But the kids are being forced to marry their cousins. And if you don't, you're, going, you're not a proper Muslim Even though they've never practiced proper Islam So they leave religion There was one woman who called me once, a few years ago And she was married to a non-Muslim Pakistani woman, married to a non-Muslim So she had a question about something I can't remember the question now But I started talking to her and I said Well, how are you married to a non-Muslim? Because you could tell she was conscious She, was, she, she had some thought. said, well, you know, when I was much younger She was about 40 now She said, when I was much younger My parents got me forced married to my cousin or somebody, and we had no compatibility. There was no compatibility, right? I couldn't stay with him, and that was made to make it seem like this is Islamic. So I just took off and then married somebody else, but now she's coming back. So a lot of the time, that is the case because of persecution. France is suffering from that, because they were persecuted the most by the Christian church, apparently. So, we ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to improve and increase our faith, mm-hmm. and give us an understanding. Because, as I said, these things there are so many reasons why these things could happen: indifference, confidence with what you have, security with what you have. So, we ask Allah to always keep us on His path. Wa rabbil salam. Okay. So, I appreciate that question. Um, suffering. These questions come from the fact that suffering is a bad thing, right? The 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 presumption behind this, the assumption behind this, is suffering a bad thing. If God is if God is uh, all merciful, why does suffering exist? Suffering can't go with mercy. That's why that's the issue. Now I'll tell you something. For Muslims, this shouldn't even be a question. This is a Christian problem, not a Muslim problem. Reason why it's a Christian problem, right? Is uh, And I'm really glad that this brother was brave enough to ask that question Because that must have taken a lot of courage to ask that So I'm really glad you did ask that question And don't feel, don't feel bad about asking questions As bad as they sound if, they'd bug, if they're bugging you Because otherwise you don't have an opportunity afterwards So nobody should laugh at people asking questions So where's that brother gone? Are you still here? Oh there, sorry, I was looking down there Right, So I'm glad you asked that question So number one You see, for Christians, God has been reduced to loving. It's all about love now, right? There's nothing else. That's why our previous, the, the, the previous and the current, interesting, both Archbishops of Canterbury, the current one and the previous Ron Williams, when the tsunami happened the first time, he said, my faith shook. Because how do you have this suffering with a, your concept of God of being just a merciful God but with Muslims we don't have that issue why because yes our God is merciful we talk about his mercy over and over and again in the daytime <coughs> Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen ar Rahim Rahman and Rahim which means the merciful the mercy giving the compassionate we call him the loving one the wadood we have all of these names for Allah but are you forgetting that he also has other names and he also has other functions Allah is also the mighty one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the punishing one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the one from whom all harm comes, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the one who takes revenge, Allah is also the one who vanquishes people, Allah has all the power and omnipotency, in His, in, in His, uh, that's who He is. So sometimes we see the manifestation of His mercy, and sometimes we see the manifestation of His punishment, sometimes we see the manifestation of His might. For example, we were me and another friend, we were at Victoria Falls, Zambia, Zimbabwe, absolutely beautiful. Much better than Niagara Falls. You've been there one night, right? Absolutely beautiful. My friend remarked that, "Mashallah, what a beauty of Allah. I said, wow, what a majesty of Allah. Because you can see it however you like, these are manifestations. So if there's suffering in this world, suffering isn't bad. If there was no suffering, imagine it, if there was no suffering, where would, your, where would your happiness come from? Would there be happiness if there was no suffering? Suffering is the opposite of happiness, they're just different, th- they're different states, right? The other thing is that when a tsunami, or a storm, or a destruction takes place anywhere, then it doesn't have the same function for everybody, right? The poor Indonesians, may Allah have mercy on them, they've just suffered an earthquake, right? Among them, there were people who are probably suffering. So, for them, this has just relieved them of the misery of this world, They are shaheed, they are martyrs, and in the hereafter, they mashallah, that's a shortened way to paradise. Of course, you have to take this on belief, right? But without this belief, you'll be suffering anyway. For example, if an atheist says that there's no concept of good and bad, there's no concept of suffering, and his mother died of cancer out of five years of struggle and pain, what did she die for? At least my mother who died from cancer I know she's a shaheed And I can feel good about that Now you can say, well that's just a feel good factor I'd rather have a feel good factor than no feel good factor What's wrong with having a feel good factor When I actually believe in it You'll only find out in the hereafter It'll be too late to argue about it But at least I've got a theory, an idea That carries on beyond this world Right, so suffering Is not a bad thing Because the people who die there, some of them Maybe being punished, some of them maybe just being another bounty of Allah, right? And that's why Allah has allowed it in this world. And I've got numerous—I mean, I've got several answers to this particular question because I'm going to write something about it. That suffering is, uh, at least in the Muslim view, suffering has number of functions. What does a musibah do to us? It wipes away your sin suffering makes you a stronger person imagine a world without suffering could you even imagine it would would there be something called happiness because generally you understand black because of white otherwise there'd be no concept of black there'd be no concept of white you need to know opposites to be able to figure things out so for us suffering has many functions it purifies it uh, basically helps you to strengthen yourself to get better to learn and at the end of the day, if somebody did die from suffering, well if they had the right intention, then alhamdulillah they've, they've died as a shaheed because the Prophet ﷺ has said that the one who dies in a particular suffering uh, suffering situations, they die, um, uh, uh, they die as shaheed. The other thing is that if there was no suffering how would there be free will then? Because if you're saying that why does God allow somebody to create suffering, to cause suffering? That's Created Allah allows that to be created because of free will. Does everybody agree that we got free will in this world? Because if you didn't have free will, you wouldn't be punished or rewarded. (coughs) The reason we're punished or rewarded, free will is very important. That we got a choice. We nobody can deny free will. Not even an atheist. Because free will is something you experience. You can tell the difference between when you're walking on a straight ground, the control you have on your pace. And if you're walking downhill, you have less control. So you can understand you've got a certain amount of free will. Now for free will to be there, certain people are going to do some weird things with that. But then they're going to be punished for that. So Allah allows it because that's the system of this world. And for Allah, this is the main answer. For Allah, this is not the final world. This is a test ground. right? And as soon as you can get out of your head that this is our final abode, everything becomes easier to understand that paradise ultimately for us is what we want. Not hellfire. But this world is just a test place. So Allah is going to allow people to do things with their free will. Some of that is going to cause suffering. And nowhere was it promised there will be no suffering. So it's really a moot question anyway to start with. The reality is there's suffering. right? And it fits with the God, with the paradigm of Allah in the picture. Because Allah allows the suffering. Because our God is just not merciful. He's merciful and He's also the mighty and the one from whom all harm can come as well. So hopefully that, I mean it might take a while if if you, uh, you know, to understand these things or to acclimate yourself with it. It could take a while to just give it a thought. Right? I don't know how much that does for you but hopefully that helps. What's the point of trying, right? If everything is written? Okay, I'm not going to be able to answer that question now because that would take me one hour and 15 minutes exactly. Because I've done it a few times. But I will tell you that since you brought that question up, very important question. I did a lot of research on it and I've got a talk online called Don't Be Depressed, You Don't Know Your Future. That inshallah in a very satisfying way deals with this particular question. But just to give you you some relief. um, Do you know what's written in the future for you? Right, so why are you so sure about it that it makes us feel that we shouldn't do anything? Why couldn't it also be written that you'll do X, Y, and Z, and that's why that will happen? Do you see what I'm saying? If everything is written, then it's also written that you will do X, Y, and Z, and that will be the consequence will be produced. A lot of people, they've had a miserable past of 5, 10, 20 years. So they feel now that the future is going to be miserable as well. But nobody knows the future. You don't know what's written until it's done. Do you understand? Only then do you actually know what's written. So why are we worried about what's written? But that's another answer. The other way to look at it is that what is written is not written in a prescriptive way. It's written in a descriptive way. What does that mean? Allah in His omniscience, which means His eternal knowledge of everything, knows what every one of us is going to do when we come into this world. He knows it even though we haven't done it yet. So what He did, like a teacher who projects the grades of her students, But he knows in a more absolute way, right? He shows he is told the pen to write. Uh, Fifty thousand years before the creation of this world, Allah created a pen and He created a tablet. Right now we get the idea of a tablet nowadays, right? And He said to the pen, "Write." He says, "What should I write?" And He said, "Everything that is going to occur until the day of judgment." For us, it's become so easy to understand this Bluetooth connection, right? And uh, the the knowledge from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, He must have some. Ajeeb technology, beyond Bluetooth, right? That knowledge of what's going to happen until judgment was all written. What's your name? Raees. So it was written that Raees is going to come to this program today with your free will, I'm assuming. Nobody forced you, right? He's going to come to this program. He's going to do this. He's going to do that with his free will. <laughs> when you do whatever you do, it goes in accordance to what's written because Allah knew what you were going to do with your free will. So now it, they both go together, but not because you're forced to do it. It's because you were going to do that with your free will. He knew it, so he wrote it down. So it's just a running commentary of what you're going to do. Now, that suddenly makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? So don't worry about what's written because we don't even know anyway until we do it. That's the main thing. Don't be depressed. But I would really suggest you listen to that talk because it will satisfy a lot of your issues about this. It's called Don't Be Depressed, You Don't Know Your Future. Okay? Oh, this doesn't, sound like a, this doesn't sound like it's a properly worded question. You don't get a child, from what I'm assuming when I heard child is like a little kid. Kids don't deny God. right? They, they, they've come from the pure world, they haven't been so adulterated. I'm assuming you're talking about like an adult teenager or something like that. Right? Now, uh, one thing that I missed which this question will bring up is that a lot of children, the reason why they've turned to this is because they've lacked some kind of pastoral care. They feel a bit estranged. They feel a bit let down and ignored. So a lot, of, a lot of atheists are like that. They're ignored. They're looking for something. So some, it just depends. Right? I can't answer this question 100% for your case because every case is different. If you can show them love and bring them back and you think that's going to be effective, alhamdulillah. If it's not and they're spoiling others, they're also going to cause the other children to go in that direction, then you need to take a drastic move. Right, which means that you do distance them, but you, k- you keep an open, you keep a, a window open. All right? And again, this is a very rough answer to this because would, a lot of factors depend this. but hopefully this gives you some understanding of the parameters that you, to work, you need to work in. So that, that, that requires a bit of a more lengthier answer, but this is a typical question about why would you design something like this and make them do something. So first and foremost, let's stop looking at the verses of punishment here. Let's start looking at the benefits, and let's also look at our position. At the end of the day, if I wanted to create a robot that didn't have to pray well, that's my prerogative. But if I wanted to create a robot that I did want to pray well, that's my prerogative. Right? That robot can't question me. So if you're accepting that you're a robot, then you can't question the master anyway. Again, we don't always understand people's perspectives of why they do things. Prayer, to be honest, I mean, unfortunately, it looks like nobody's explained prayer. Prayer is a sanctuary, prayer the reason we pray is not because we want to, I don't even, I, I, to be honest, I, when I, if, I have, like if I'm going to miss a prayer, I'm not even worried about the punishment, I'm more worried about the fact that Allah is going to miss me, where He's told me to be, and I love my Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much, hopefully I do, that I feel bad if I don't pray. Because he, he's given me everything, right? And he, all he wants me to do is remember him five times a day and I find that actually very beneficial because otherwise I get so immersed in whatever I'm doing that I forget myself, right? Whether that be in eating, whether that be in watching something, whether it be in doing some other activity, I get so immersed that I forget even myself. Prayer gives me a sanctuary to go back to five times a day to remember who I am, to reorient myself, to refocus myself, all right, and to give some thank, thanks to my Lord. For example, a friend of mine used to explain it to children. This, and we're not talking to children here, but he used to explain it to children why you pray. He says, um, "Do you do you have an auntie that you really like because she gives you a lot of stuff, like one of your colors or something that give you a lot of stuff?" Yeah, you right so everybody has this auntie who's like you know mashallah she gives you a lot of stuff now every time you go to see how old are you if we're taught from a young age that look if you go to your auntie every time you go to her she gives you all this stuff but you don't even meet her properly and you just run off to play on the xbox each time you go to the house how would your auntie feel a bit a bit sad isn't it a bit let down so with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he gives us everything And then we're not even willing to, we're like, why do you make that necessary in me for? Why should I meet you for? Why should I do kala kala, as they say? Do you understand? But we're looking at it from our selfish perspective, right? We're not looking at it from their perspective that to make somebody feel good is happiness. And for Allah, we are basically just doing what we're supposed to do. Suddenly we've taken on this autonomous role of thinking that we should call the shots and we should decide what's good and bad for us. And we haven't even lived in this world for more than 30-50 years to really understand what's really good and bad for us. You have to look at something in a wholesome picture. I had to rush that answer a bit because I'm conscious of the prayer time. But uh, mashaAllah, there were some really enjoyable questions. Hopefully it was useful. Hopefully nobody's more doubtful than they were from before we started because that would be a massive failure. We ask Allah for enlightenment and we ask Allah for barakah and blessing and guidance, inshallah. Quick dua. Allah, my Anta Salaam, Mamink Salaam, to Bar of the Adel Jalari, will he crum, Allah, may I, Hadu Yaka Yun, Biramatik and Estarit, Allah, may I, Hana, Yaman, Illa, and the inna Kinna Kunamil of Dari mean. Oh, Allah, we ask you for your mercy. Oh Allah, we ask you for your blessing. Oh Allah, we ask you for your forgiveness. Oh Allah, we ask you for your guidance and your help. Oh Allah, forgive all of our sins. Forgive all of our wrongdoings. Forgive all of our excesses. Oh Allah, there are so many things in this world. Oh Allah, give us guidance. Oh Allah, remove the doubt from us. Relieve us from the problems. Oh Allah, do not let our hearts be deviated after you gave us guidance. Oh Allah, we ask you for protection from... Doubt about the truth after having had conviction. Oh Allah, we ask that only you can help us. So Allah, you help us. Oh Allah, that you make us more closer to you. Grant us your love in our hearts. Oh Allah, bless all of those who are sitting here, all of those who are listening. Oh Allah, make this a worthwhile session that we have had. Oh Allah, we ask that you do not allow us to turn away from here, except after being fully forgiven, fully purified in our hearts, and oh Allah, fully convinced about our faith. Oh Allah, we ask that you reward all of those who've made this program uh, uh, you've allowed this, who've allowed, who've made this program and organized this program here. Oh Allah, that you benefit all of those who are sitting here, and that you protect us and our progenies from the doubts and the fitnas which are out there. And oh Allah, we ask that you give us, you give us the company of Rasulullah oh. in the hereafter, and that you send your abundant blessings on him. Subhanahu wa rabbil